What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism or through Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. For if we had been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly also shall we be in in the likeness of, of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who was for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the, the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourself to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under, under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under the grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are the one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, that you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you present your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have than of the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. I'd like to begin our time by looking at Matthew's gospel. If you would, turn to Matthew chapter 28. We'll begin at the first verse. Matthew 28. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. Remember what's just happened, right? He's, he's died. 
died on the cross. And now this is the third day. I'm giving it away, aren't I? And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. I want to begin our time by pointing to one of the four gospel accounts of Christ's resurrection. On three different occasions, as we saw last week, Jesus spoke to his disciples that he must suffer many things, that he must die, and that three days later, he would rise again. The fulfillment of what Christ said is evidenced right here in Matthew 28. He is alive. He's raised to life. And as wonderful as that is, I believe the Lord would not have you simply take note that Jesus died and was resurrected. This is not something to just take note of. You see, I'm concerned that the church is shackled a bit in its thinking about these days on the calendar called Easter and Christmas. I'm concerned that that the church has reserved these two dates on the calendar for nothing more than a reviewing of the facts. See, each year Easter rolls around, there seems to be an assumption that the church put forth the resurrection text and speak about one of the four gospel accounts regarding the empty tomb. And while teaching on the empty tomb is necessary and significant, I'm concerned that the church has mindlessly received the resurrection account as the accepted text to study at this time of the year. You see, the concern I have has absolutely nothing to do with the biblical text and whether or not it's good to teach a certain text each year. The concern I have is is rooted primarily in those who profess to follow this man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God sent to earth to save his people, Matthew says, from their sin. Tell me, when you heard Matthew 28, Read? Were you listening? If I were to back up one chapter and read about Christ's death, would you listen? You see, these foundational truths 
of Christ's birth, his death, and resurrection are not in the biblical text for tradition's sake. The Holy Spirit did not pen these accounts with the thought that these specific texts would be paraded out. Let's bring them out of the closet. Let's parade them out each year as though people needed simply to hear the account. I don't believe the Spirit recorded these truths so that the follower of Jesus could simply check a box saying, all the accounts have been read. (laughs) We're good now. It's caused me to wonder, has the follower of Jesus settled for paying homage to Christ's birth, death, and resurrection by the annual recollection of biblical truths? Is that what it's about? I hope by the grace of God to sound an alarm today about the resurrection of Jesus. See, the resurrection is is necessary because of what we see in the gospel account. He died. Jesus died on the cross. His death was necessary, church, to deal with your sin. Without Christ's death to pay for your sin, you are on your own. You're responsible to pay for your own sin. Without the resurrection of Christ, walking in newness of life is not possible. You'd be stuck gratifying and pleasing the flesh. This continuous cycle of walking in sin. The tomb is declared empty on that first day of the week. The stone is rolled away. And this is the day when many are speaking to the resurrection. It's my hope that today's message is much more than bringing up the subject. I have no desire to to simply check the box by preaching about the fact of the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, the Hebrew writer says, let's move on to some things. Let's move on from the elementary things. I believe there are some things about the resurrection of Jesus that we need to sit up and pay attention to as a follower of Jesus. Today, church, I desire for you to see how the resurrection makes a difference in your life. You know, there are a lot of people today that are crying out, well, church, I don't go to church, I don't go, to the, I don't, go I don't attend. Why? What's one of the reasons you've heard? More than likely, you've heard this one. It's not relevant. I've heard that one many occasions. The resurrection, church, is is relevant. It's not just some historical fact. It's relevant right now. That's not my opinion. That's what we're going to come to find out here in the text. See, most of you know the account in the gospel. And if you don't, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four of the gospels. Tell the account of Christ being raised on the third day. And my hope today is that you take the account and see the connection between your life and Christ's resurrection. What did the resurrection accomplish and what was its intended meaning for those who would follow Jesus in the days ahead? You see, last week we spoke of right answers. 
Remember Peter gave the right answer? He said, you are the Christ. But then we also followed it up by seeing how Jesus responded to that. You see, because Jesus knew in part that while the answer was right, a full understanding of that answer, Peter didn't yet quite have. He didn't have that yet. And so taking our right answers, translating that into right living, that's what we talked about last week, right? Right living cannot happen apart from the cross of Christ. That's what we talked about last week. But I want to add one other thing to it as we speak of Romans 6 today. Right living cannot happen unless we have a right union. Romans 6 talks a lot about that union. It's only through a right union. In fact, it's helpful to look at Romans and and give a little bit of a summary of Romans 5. Because to, to comprehend the thoughts of Paul in Romans 6, it's important to understand this fifth chapter. They, they go hand in hand, I believe. In verses 12 through 21 of chapter 5, Paul speaks of two representatives, both chosen by God to represent all men. These are the two representatives, Adam and Christ. Adam and Christ. Now the one in Adam represents truly all men. The other one in Christ represents all men who have believed and received Christ and trusted him as Lord and Savior. Okay? So please don't misunderstand. I'm not espousing any universalism. All right? Where Christ is head over all, over everybody. be my prayer that all would come to know be my prayer that all would come to trust him as Lord and Savior okay some are inclined as we look at Romans 5 to balk at having a representative in Adam his sin in the garden affected all men and yet some men don't like the idea that Adam's sin could be their sin some throw up the I didn't sin he did Okay, well, wait a minute. Problem with that. Okay. Or, couldn't God have selected a better representative for men? Let's, let's attach a note to that. Note this. Before that sin, Adam, was he not perfect? Could God have selected a better representative? No! Think about his environment. It was unstained. It was pure. Everything about it. So to say God had a wrong representative, whoa, we're missing it. We're not seeing the whole picture. Or what about the one who might say, I didn't ask God to, be, to give me a representative. Why do you feel the need to do that? Or, or how about this one? It's not fair. It's not fair to put his sin to my account. I wasn't even around when he sinned. Those who put forward excuses about Adam as their representative need to understand a few things. First of all, who are you to reply against God? First of all. Secondly, sin while it came through one man, Romans 5.12 says, 
It's not confined in one man, is it? While the sin of Adam is imputed to all men, the truth of the matter is that you still sin. Let me ask you this. Whose responsibility is it? Are you constantly pointing back to Adam? Adam made me do it. Or do you take responsibility, church, for your own sin? For those that believe this is not fair, if you believe it's not fair for God to impute Adam's sin to your account, if you believe it's not fair that God would assign to you a representative named Adam, then you need to understand where that logic takes you. You see, one representative imputes sin. While the other representative, Christ, deals with that sin once for all. So to cry foul for representation is to miss the point. See, you ought to praise the Lord that he did it this way. Anyone here desire to serve as his or, own, his or her own representative? Anybody here desire to do that? Without Christ as your representative, you are still in your sins. He is the only representative capable of dealing with your sin, and he did that through the cross. Now, Romans 5 ends this way. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Praise the Lord. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now notice where Paul goes here in chapter 6. This Q&A format, remember, that we went through in the book of Romans. He, got, he comes to a couple of the questions. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? See, Paul seems to acknowledge quite often in the book of Romans where his listeners may be going and their thoughts. And so he's, he's quick to address, as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit in writing, he's quick to address any misunderstandings. You see, because there are some who, who perhaps held on to this idea that they were starting to connect some things at the end of chapter 5. Is it true that the more I sin the greater amount of grace will be provided. Let's see. That means that I can sin however I like and God's grace is going to cover it. Wow! That's great! What's Paul say to that? Certainly not. Absolutely not. Emphatically, no. You see, Paul says that the grace given to you is not a license for sin. The grace of God is not a free pass to live life on your terms. And if you see it that way, you're blinded by what the grace of God is. What is the grace of God? There are some simple definitions that you probably have heard from time to time. Very basic level understanding is getting something, God giving you something you didn't deserve, right? Very basic, um, or, or grace, right? The, the acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense, Another gentleman described it this way. I like, I like this because he attaches another aspect of it. He says, grace is God's blessings through Christ to people who deserve his curse. 
That's what we deserve. God's blessings through Christ to people who deserve his curse. You see, on the heels of Paul's answer, notice what he says next in Romans 6 here. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Remember the question. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, certainly not. And then he says, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? How did we die to sin? How? We need to read that question in light of what we've already read in Romans 5. You see, to read Romans 6 without an understanding at all of Romans 5, we're missing it. It becomes pretty clear when you read Romans 5 and then transition in to Romans 6. See, what, when, you, when you ask the question, what is Paul advocating here in the text? We who died to sin. Verse 3 and, and forward is very helpful. And it seems like the follower of Jesus ought to know this information. He says, or do you not know? Do you not know? Like, this is something as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, you're to know. Do you not know? As many of us as were baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death. And so Paul puts forth this picture of baptism to provide an understanding of the situation. You see, we need to remember now what baptism represents. What does it represent? If I could sum it up in one word, it would be this. Identification. Identification. First of all, with Christ. And secondly, with Christ's church. Identification. Okay, so when God saves you, by his grace, through faith, which, by the way, is a gift as well. When he does that, something happens. And when that something happens, sin is no longer welcome. In fact, sin is rendered, according to the text later, it's rendered inoperative. Not because of anything you've done, but because of your new connection now with Christ. And so as you consider your connection with Christ... Notice what happens, according to Paul, in baptism. You participate in his death, his burial, his resurrection. Right? That's the picture. You participate in, in Christ's death, burial, resurrection. Okay? You were baptized into Christ's death. Keep reading, verse 4. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father... Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. We died with Christ. We were buried with Christ. And then the text says, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. You see, Christ being raised from the dead, according to the text, means something for those in Christ. It means something. And it's not something as like um, a fact that I put down on a note card and just file it away. It means something more than that. Walking in newness of life. That's the connect. Here's the application in your life. For Christ being raised from the dead, right here. It's intended to promote a walk in newness of life carried out in the newness of the Spirit. There it is. 
That's what it's intended to do. A newness of life carried out in the newness of the Spirit. A newness of life is to result from your union with Christ. And that newness of life is directly connected with the resurrection of Christ. You see, as a result of being raised, of Christ being raised, as a result of Christ being raised, you too are to be raised. And that's translated right here in the text. You are to walk in newness of life. You are to walk in newness of life. Remember, at one time you were dead, weren't you? Dead in, in transgressions. Ephesians 2.1 begins that way, doesn't it? You were dead. He made alive. Now think about this for just a moment. Again, thinking about your union, your connection with Christ. Think about being dead, literally, being dead. And someone raising you up to life. We have some accounts of that in the scripture, don't we? Where the Lord raised Lazarus to life. Think about you being dead and this one raises you now to life. Aren't you going to be grateful for the one who raised you back to life? And yet, it's a sad commentary on us as believers, as followers of Jesus, that the same one who has raised us, Romans 6, we're connected with him in this relationship. The same one who's raised us in this relationship with Christ, and yet, our living shows no gratitude for what he's done in making us alive. We've been dead. Does your life reflect any gratitude about the fact that he raised you up? He gave you new life. Church, that... That's good news. Look at verse 5. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death. United together. Don't miss that. Certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Sounds a lot like verse 4. But there's something specific here I believe Paul's getting at in verse 5. It speaks of the union that we have in Christ. But here's what he says. That word certainly. You can underline it. As surely as you are connected with Christ in his death, you are also certainly connected with Christ in his resurrection. Okay? So the resurrection is not simply a fact. It's not simply something to acknowledge once a year on the calendar. According to the text, the resurrection of Jesus means something for me right now. It calls me to walk in newness of life and reminds me that this kind of living is grounded in my union with Christ. You see, being connected to Christ is not simply a title, a position. I'm a follower. I'm a Christian, right? It's intended to manifest itself in right living. Newness of life 
carried out through the newness of the Spirit. Look at verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with. There it is, that phrase, done away with, rendered inoperative. That we should no longer be slaves of sin. This gets, this gets really good. It's all good, but it just kind of builds. I just love this. This is a wonderful text. You see, before the grace of God saves you, right? Ephesians 2, saved by grace through faith, right? Before that, you walk according to your former master. Who's your former master? Sin. Sin. So, the old man was crucified with Christ. The man we used to be in Adam is crucified with Christ. Why? That the body of sin might be done away with, might be rendered inoperative. Why? That we should no longer be slaves of sin. You see, Christ died at the cross, and you, being in Christ, died with him. The sin that once held you captive no longer does as a result, not of your works, but as a result of the cross of Christ and your new union with him. You see, you are no longer a slave to sin. That's your former master. Romans 6, 7 says, For he who has died has been freed from sin. See, if you have died with Christ, you have been freed. You've been cleared from sin. If you've died with Christ, you have been justified. I like the definition one writes about justification. What is justification? God's declaration that we are righteous before him. That we are righteous before him. We are justified. You see, you're cleared in the sense that you're now treated as if you've never sinned. That's hard to understand, isn't it? That's hard to imagine. Because we see our lives, and especially many of us, we look back and we see our past. And, and our past isn't something that we just like to talk about. Our past, for some of us, is quite ugly, isn't it? And, and see this clearing. You're cleared in a sense that you're now treated as if you always obeyed. You're cleared in the sense that you're now rendered not guilty in the eyes of God. You see, he who has died with Christ has been freed from sin. Your union with Christ makes this freedom possible. That's why this union with Christ is so important. It's so significant. Look at 8 and 9. If we died with Christ, now if we died with Christ... We believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. So Paul is reminding his listener here that the union with Christ applies not only to the cross, but to the empty tomb as well. Okay, do you see this? Not, not only to the cross, but to the empty tomb as well. If you died with Christ, do you believe that you will also live with him? The death of Christ resulted in God raising him back to life three days later. That's what we read at the beginning, Matthew 28. Death was defeated. Christ no longer dies, but is alive. Death no longer has dominion over him. And that's good news. Keep reading. Verse 10, for the death that he died. 
He died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. You see, Christ died to sin once for all. And if you are in Christ, this is wonderful news. Your union with Christ is significant right here. You see, if Christ died to sin, not on account of his own sin, for he had none, right? Let's be clear. This is a wonderful verse. Helps us, gives us some understanding right here. But God made him who knew no sin. That's Jesus. To be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21. You see, the only way you become the righteousness of God is in him. Through your union with Christ. I read earlier to the men about Paul's desire. Not for a righteousness of his own that come through the law. But for the righteousness that comes from God by faith. Through Christ. There's a difference. And this is exactly what, what Paul's getting at here. He's talking about this. And I believe that 2 Corinthians 5, 21 helps us understand this. You see, remember that he died to sin once for all. In your union with Christ, you participate in his death, making it possible for you to die to sin. That's what Romans 6, 2 how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? That doesn't make any sense that you would live in it. You've died to it, being united with Christ. But there's more. You see, the life that Christ lives. Talk about the death. Let's talk about the life. The life that Christ lives, he lives to God. His death on the cross makes it possible for you to die to sin. But his resurrection makes it possible for you to live to God. The resurrection speaks of life where there once was none. You see, in some sense, that was true, each one of you. You were alive and that you're breathing, but you were dead. You were essentially a dead man walking around. Since you did not have the spirit of Christ in you, since you had no union with Christ, you were well on your way to eternal death and separation from Christ. Quite the opposite of a union with Christ. Look at verse 11. Likewise, in the same manner, right? After talking about what Christ did, likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed, indeed, to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You also reckon, you, you count or, or consider or render yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. That's the first part, okay? So what's that mean? Well, as a follower of Jesus, we are to consider it so that we are dead indeed. There's certainty there. We're dead to sin, having died with Christ, being united together with him. That's the first part. 
What's the second part? Well, the second part there is that we're to consider it so that we are alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see, church, these are things that you are to reckon to be so if you are in Christ. Consider them to be so if you are united with Christ. And look at the purpose. Look at verse 12. Therefore, therefore, in light of what you know about your union with Christ, in light of what you know about what Christ did, in light of what Christ did at the cross, and in light of what Christ did in his resurrection, how he was raised to life, in light of those things, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Two things right here we're told not to do. First, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. See, because if Christ died to sin once for all, and through your union with him, you too died to sin, then do not let sin reign in your mortal body. He's no longer your master. You see, it's been rendered inoperative through the cross. Your obedience now is to a new master, to Christ. And your former master, sin, has no business hanging around. He has no authority over you anymore. Don't feel obligated to do what he says any longer. You died to sin if you are in Christ. Secondly, in this text he says, do not present your members. Your members, hands, feet, ears, mouth, parts of my body, right? your members, as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. You know, we need to maybe attach one of those sticky notes to the members of our body and let them know this. Stick it on my hand. Put it on my ear. Put one over my mouth. And remind these parts of my body that God made Christ who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, God sent Jesus down here in the form of a man where he died on the cross to be sin for us. But why? That we might become the righteousness of God. Therefore, think about it. If God planned it out in such a way to send his son to deliver you from your sin through the cross, and that in dealing decisively with that sin... He did so that you might become the righteousness of God in him. Speaks to the union. Why then would you have any desire to use the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness? Why? Why would you desire to do that? God did what he did that you might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Do not spurn the grace that he's afforded to you. Do not see that your union with Christ... Don't see that as, we're missing it if we, if we see this apart from our union with Christ. See, the union with Christ aspect we need to understand about his death. We died to sin because of what Christ did. He rendered that sin inoperative now. Got rid of it. And some of you are sitting there going, well, I still sin. I, I, yep, you do. You do, so do I. As long as we still have these earthen tents called bodies, 
that, that's going to still hang on. It's going to hang on. You know, Galatians 5, Galatians 5 talks about that, doesn't it? About these two things that war within us. You see, there's an old man who likes to get back up on that throne. Likes to have his way. And sadly, we allow that old man the opportunity to do that. But you see, the reality of the situation is that when we look at the resurrection of Christ, this is wonderful. Because the application of this resurrection of Christ is that we are to walk in newness of life. Newness of life. The old is gone. The new has come, right, Paul says? You are a new creation. In the Galatians, he says circumcision doesn't matter a whole lot. What matters is a new creation. A new creation. And so as we're thinking about this text, and we're looking at this text, and we're asking ourselves these questions about what Paul's getting at and arriving at here in, in 12 and 13, presenting ourselves... Members as instruments of unrighteousness. That is unheard of in light of what Christ has done. You see, this body, for however much longer the Lord gives us this body here on earth, is to be set apart for Christ now to serve Him. Right now. This is not some wonderful fact. Just to put away in our file cabinet. This is applicable right now. And so after sharing what not to do, Paul concludes verse 13. With two parallel statements of what to do. Okay, he says, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So, so first, when you present yourself to God as being alive from the dead, you are manifesting the power of Christ's resurrection in your own body, in your own life. And contrast that to allowing sin to reign in your body, obeying its lust. Verse 12. Okay? Walking in newness of life is a sharp contrast, church, it's a sharp contrast to walking in sin. Does everybody agree with that? That walking in newness of life looks much differently than walking in sin? Okay, that sharp contrast. One life recognizes his union with Christ. Specifically, the resurrection aspect of being alive to God now. And the other life is content walking with his former master. He's content walking with his former master. Likes it. Secondly, in verse 13, in contrast to presenting your members as instruments of unrighteousness, Paul says to present your members as instruments of righteousness. In other words, you are intentional now about using your members for God. To give God glory, to live out in application your union with Christ. If you're united with Christ, these members are to function for righteousness' sake. But for what purpose? I, I love this. Turn, turn one page over to Romans 7. Uh, Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. Wow! You just swim in those four chapters. Just... I mean, there's more to Romans than those four, but those four are, are wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful, instructional, helpful. Not just for information, helpful for living. You see, the Word of God, church, is profitable. 
Not just so we can accumulate knowledge. The word of God is profitable to help us live it. To help us to know what Christ would want us to know and how to live. So Romans 7, I'm getting off track. Or do you not know, brethren? For I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over man as long as he lives. Do you not know that? For the woman, he gives an illustration, okay? He's just given, ask a question, now he's going to give an illustration here. The woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she'll be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren... Coming back to his point here. Look at this. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ. That you may be married to another. To him, underline it, to him who was raised from the dead. For what purpose? Are we married to another? That we should bear fruit to God. That we should bear fruit to God. You know, if these words here in Romans 7 were interchanged, the same could be true. You know, when we say, you also have become dead to sin through the body of Christ, that you might be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that you might bear fruit to God. There's some wonderful parallel between Romans 6 and Romans 7. One of them talking about dying to the law. The other one's talking about being delivered from the law. Excuse me, dying to sin. The other one's being delivered from the law. But wonderful truths are, are, are there in both those chapters, and we can look at both of them together. In fact, look at verse 6 of chapter 7. But now we have been delivered, he says, from the law. Applying what we're talking about in Romans 6, we could say the same thing about sin, being delivered from sin, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Well, that reminds me back here in, in Romans 6. Newness, both these chapters are speaking about newness. Romans 6 says newness of life. Romans 7 says newness of the spirit. You see, the intended application of dying to sin is to walk in newness of life. The intended application of being delivered from the law is to walk in newness of the spirit. You see, they reveal one and the same thing to this walk in newness, and yet they each reveal a unique aspect of that newness. Dying to sin is to walk in newness of life. What's that doing? It's pointing us back to the empty tomb. It's pointing us back to Christ having been raised. Pointing back to my union with Christ in his resurrection. Having been delivered from the law is to walk in the newness of the spirit. You see, because the law had no power to save, all the law did was point out the mere fact that you are a sinner. And I love what Paul says about the law. And the law takes us by the hand as a tutor to the one, the only one who can save us. And that is Jesus Christ. But you see, what we were, what the law was incapable of doing, not because of the law, but because we were weak in our flesh. Romans 8 says this, right? Romans 8, 3 and 4. That God sent his son to do and to fulfill the law in us. The righteous requirements of the law, we couldn't do it. But God sent his only son to carry that out and fulfill the law, the requirements of the law, in and through us who have and who walk by the And when we get that, Romans 8, 2 makes a little bit more sense. 
For the law of the spirit of life, that's Romans 7, in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. That's Romans 6. And that's praise the Lord. Wonderful. That's wonderful news. You see, walk in the newness of life. Your union with Christ is extended, according to the text, even unto the resurrection. His resurrection is much more than pointing you to a picture of an empty tomb. Albeit it's wonderful to see such a tomb. It's wonderful to see it empty. To know that he is alive. He has risen. For that tomb, what's the tomb do? Does the tomb not point to life? He's not dead. He's alive. That's what it points to. Life. Some of us walk around and we have no life. And what I mean by that is this. You walk around and someone can't tell you have any life in you. Because the life that you have, some of us need to have a wake-up call on this. That the life that is in us, through Christ, through his resurrection, needs to show itself on some of your faces. If you have the life of Christ in you, it ought to, it ought to show up on your face. Not just here in your heart. There ought to be some manifestation of that life in you. That life you now to live to God as a result of what Christ did and was being raised in his resurrection. That now has application for you and me today, right now. You see, that same life is characteristic of the one who follows Jesus. The newness of life is to be lived out right now. The church of Jesus, think about this, the church of Jesus Christ Walking in newness of life. Think about that one for just a moment. What does that look like? What does it look like for a church to walk in newness of life? Some of you maybe are thinking Acts 2. That's a good one. Or how about Acts 3? Or Acts 4? Or Acts 5? How about this whole book of Acts? Because you see... What you see when you come and open up the book of Acts isn't the book of Acts primarily what happens in the context of the church post-resurrection. We get a glimpse of what life is intended to be after the resurrection. It's filled with life. And these people are walking around and they're getting thrown in jail and they're getting said, don't preach Jesus don't preach Christ resurrected. Don't do this. Don't do this. And these guys don't care. Because we, can help, we cannot help but testify what we've seen and heard. You see, it's moved from some simple factoid in my file that I keep to now I'm living this out. What it means to be alive to God. This is not some... I'm not, I'm not just wanting to inquire this information just so I can have it for a rainy day. Oh, no, no. I am united with Christ, and because of that, I now am to live my life as being alive from the dead. That's how I'm to live. And that's what I see in the book of Acts, church. That's what I see, modeled by the apostles. So let me just close with this. Some implications of, of walking in newness of life. What does it look like to walk in newness of life? Presenting yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. 
What's that look like? Okay, so let me just give you a few. First of all, uh, and, and many of these words I put uh, just it wasn't planned out. It just happened to be that way. So uh, I typically am not a big uh, starting uh, a, a point with each same letter. Okay, but it just happened to be this is what it is. So require, this may be helpful for you to remember. Requirement. What, what does it mean? Walking in newness of life. Well, there's a requirement here that the Spirit of God must be in me to walk this way. Okay? The Spirit of God must be in me to walk this way. You can't just want to walk this way. I wish I could. No, no. The Spirit of God must, must be in me to walk this way. Romans 8 verse 9 says, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he's not his. So the Spirit of Christ must be in you. Okay? Now, second one. Walking in newness of life. We need to also consider the results. Consider the results of your life. The Spirit of God will be manifested in you. How do I know that? Galatians 5, and 23 speaks of fruit, right? Most of us are familiar with that text. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace. If you don't know it, by the way, you need to read it and get to know it because that is the result of what's to be in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those ought to be the results of your life. Or what about this one? Walking in newness of life. We need to remember Remember, remember in our text today, Romans 6, 13. Count yourself, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We need to remember that. We need to remember that. Each day you wake up, you need to remember that. Count yourself dead to sin. Remember your union with Christ. Four, walking in newness of life. We need to, we need to understand our response. What is our response Walking in newness of life. What's that mean? Well, what we read in Romans 6, 13, that we are to present our members now as instruments of righteousness to God. We're to present our members as instruments of righteousness. Okay? That's, that's the response. If we're going to walk, walk in newness of life, we've been called to walk in this newness of life, our response then is, is to make sure that parts of our body, all that we're about doing every day now, okay, this is why we need to remember to count ourselves dead to sin. Remember also that our members are to be used now as instruments of righteousness to God. So walking in newness of life, number five, we need to remember a relationship. Okay, relationship. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 is wonderful for this. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. Okay, and it speaks to the love of Christ. Okay, the love of Christ ought now be my motivation for all things. He says here in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, for the love of Christ compels me. It compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all. Fact. That those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So our living, our living to God, right? We need to remember the relationship that we have. The love of Christ ought to compel you in all of your relationships. Number six, resolve. Walking in newness of life, you need to resolve to live, as Paul says in Philippians 3, as a citizen of heaven. I'm going to live as a citizen of heaven. I'm of a different country. Yes, I'm here for a while, and then I'll be gone. But while I'm here, I need to remember my citizenship, my most important citizenship. It's not that I am a citizen of these United States of America. Praise the Lord that I'm a citizen of the United States of America. But my most important citizenship is that 
that country yet to come that we long for, that place that we desire to be. I hope we desire to be. I'm going to say that collectively. So if you're not, I'm going to still speak for you. We desire to be there. I do. From what I, from what I can tell in the scripture, it's going to be a wonderful place. Resolve to live your life as a citizen of heaven. Number seven, resource. Resource. Walking in newness of life. We need to understand something. That as we walk out this newness of life, we have a resource. That we are to delight in God and his word. See, walking in newness of life. Psalm 119, by the way, is a good, good psalm. It couples both of those together, the delight of God and the delight of his word. Psalm 1 talks about delighting and meditating upon his word day and night. You see, walking in newness of life, that's what happens. Okay? And then finally, number eight, representative. Representative. Walking in newness of life. Walking in newness of life means that you now are a representative or maybe a, a, a... Ambassador would be another word we could put in there, right? The Lord of the Lord. You are a witness called to operate in the power of the Holy Spirit, Acts 1.8. It's interesting that when the Holy Spirit came down in, in Acts chapter 1, they were told to wait, weren't they? Wait for what? Wait for the power. You see, the power was to come first, and then he says, you be my witnesses. So why do we try to be a witness apart from the power that he's given to us. As a representative, it's important that we understand to represent him, to walk in newness of life. Let's couple it with what we saw in Romans 7. To walk in newness of life, we also need the newness of the Spirit. So, one writer says this, this representative union, this legal union with Christ is key to understanding the gospel. In fact, more than that, it is what makes Christ's life and death, and I'll add resurrection, effective for us. If Christ did not legally represent us, all that he did would be of no avail to us. Think about that for just a moment. But there's also the implication of walking in newness of life today. This is what we would call this vital or living union. Okay? One and the same, but they get manifested differently. Okay? This living, vital union, this present tense, that same union with Christ is lived out through the power of the Spirit operating in you, pointing you toward the very things of Christ, enabling you to see, to hear, to speak, to walk in accordance to the truth of Jesus Christ. If I could just give you a closing picture. Turn to Acts. We're about done. Hang in there with me. Acts chapter 4. And before I read, I want you to think about this. The implications for you to walk in the newness of life, to present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. I want you to think about that. I'm going to pick it up in verse 7. Peter and John are arrested. You probably remember the story. They're arrested. They're thrown in prison. They're coming before the Sanhedrin. And here's the question, verse 7. When they set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, the newness of the Spirit, said to him, 
said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Look at verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Oh, they realized that they had been with Jesus. Let me ask the question. What does walking in newness of life look like? I believe this account gives us a really good picture of that. Walking in newness of life. Church, that ought to look much like Jesus. When people see your life, they probably know of Jesus and heard of Jesus. But they're seeing someone who's, this is from the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin. They recognized they'd been with Jesus. And that's what a life, walking in newness of life, that's what it looks like. And so, This morning, as you remember the resurrection of Christ, as you remember the empty tomb, remember also the implications of your union with Christ. That representative union, right? Adam and Christ. And also that vital living union to be carried out in the power of the Holy Spirit today, right now, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. Remember what it means to walk now in newness of life. Newness of life looks a lot like Jesus. And church, I'm going to leave you with this idea, this thought, wonderful news, encouragement, exhortation. The resurrection of Jesus does make a difference. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope that you've given to us. Thank you, Father, that you saw fit to send your son. That he lived, he died, he was buried, he was raised. According to the scriptures. And that, Father, you have seen fit to include us. You made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Father, I pray we would remember this morning 
not only the resurrection of Jesus, not only the fact, not only the, the historical time of some 2,000 years ago when Christ went to the cross and he died, and not only the fact three days later he was raised, but Father, I pray we would understand how our union with Christ impacts our living for today. That having right answers and, and, and being concerned with right living. Well, Father, help us to understand that right living only comes out of having that right union with your Son, Jesus Christ. May we be true representatives and ambassadors of your word. And may in these vessels, in these bodies, in the time that you give to us, Lord, may these bodies be all about obeying and walking and righteousness and understanding what you've done to make our way of living possible. So we just say thank you this morning. And I pray each day, Lord, that this church would be grateful for the gift of Christ, grateful for the power of the Spirit, that we would walk in newness of life carried out in the newness of the Spirit. Oh, Father, thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.